The context is that we started in chapter 26 dealing with various emotional issues. Um, troubleshooting, mostly. Things that could go wrong emotionally. So if you remember the first half, the first half of chapter 26, we dealt with Daigus Mimile de Alma. Troubles of a worldly nature. When life gets to you. And how to not let it get you down. Then the second half of chapter second half of chapter twenty six we dealt with Daigus Mimiladishmaya, spiritual troubles. Spiritual troubles we defined as guilt over past transgressions. When my past is haunting me. And we talked about how not to get down about that either. Chapter 27, we spoke about, well, what, what I call shame, which is spiritual problems that are in the present. Not sins, because we're not talking to someone who's actually uh, sinning. If you're sinning, stop it. If you're sinning, what should you do? Tanya already gave you a system how to deal with that, Remember? You have tools for that. control yourself. change yourself through meditation, or at the very least, reveal the hidden love. So we're not dealing with that anymore. At this point in the book, you have a system for how to manage behavior. Now we're purely dealing with mood. How to manage your mood. And remember, I, I, I said this at the beginning of chapter 26, and the second time we did chapter 26, and when we did chapter 27, I guess I'm going to say it for a fourth time. The reason why Tanya is focusing on mood is because if you're not in a good mood, like the metaphor of the wrestlers, you're not going to perform well. You're not going to perform well, and you're not going to do everything you learn in chapters 1 through 25, or you won't execute it properly. So we have to make sure we stay in a good, positive mood so we can execute chapters 1 through 25. And if we do that properly, 1 through 25 is executed properly, our behaviors are going to be perfect. So we're talking about here, person who is doing that, if he's not doing it, then go back to those chapters. But at this point, we're talking about someone who is doing it successfully, and he's feeling, remember I'm right now, I'm reviewing chapter 27, he's feeling shame about the desire, he has an attraction or proclivity towards sinful things, <clears throat> and that is causing him to be distraught, and we dealt with that. We told him how he shouldn't get down about that either. Chapter 28 is dealing now. Now we're in chapter 28. Chapter 28 is dealing with a very, very specific problem that would cause a person... Um, Anxiety. This thing. Chapter 28 is talking about a very specific problem, and that is the propensity for foreign thoughts, whether of a sinful nature or just simply an inappropriately mundane nature, in the middle of dominating. Oh. <laughs> you have a friend who told you that happened to her once? <laughs> What's up with that? I'm trying to daven, 
And now my mind is being flooded. What is going on here? Okay. First of all, you know the point of this chapter. You already know the point of the chapter. What's the point of the chapter? In the context of what we started doing since chapter 26. Whatever else I'm going to tell you, what's the main point of the chapter? What does it say on you? No, don't look at the time. You <laughs> use your intuition. Yes. Yeah. Don't, don't feel, feel bad, bad about, bad it. about it. it. Whatever else don't you're going to hear about it, the main point is don't feel bad about it. Because feeling bad about it is not going to help you. In fact, a good way to ruin your entire Yiddishkeit, God forbid, to be to start feeling bad about the fact that you're getting distracted during davening, and from there now you're going to unravel everything. God forbid. Okay. So, but how how should I not feel bad about it? It's really what kind of a person am I that the, immediately the minute that I pick up a sitter, I start thinking about which bills I haven't paid and all the calls I have to make, and I'm, I'm so conscientious that I'm start planning my day only when I. Open up a scissor. <laughs> so he says like this. The advice, if you want the simple advice, plan A. Simple advice is ignore it. Do nothing. Do nothing. Don't respond in any way. It's just it's it's just static. And, he, and it, later on in the chapter, he goes back to describing this a little bit more in detail. I'm going to try to follow the flow of the chapter. In the flow of the chapter, so he says, do nothing, just ignore it. Don't, don't even do anything. Don't do anything. The next thing he mentions is, and if you heard somewhere about a certain method for dealing with it, I want to address why you shouldn't employ that method. All right. And this requires a little explanation. The Alter Rebbe says, maybe you heard about a method called Halos Hamidois Shalomach Shalazara. The principle behind that is that every thought has an emotion behind it. You know, I mean, we know this. We know this from, from the Tanya that we're learning, right? Mm -hmm. Chapter 3 and Chapter 4. There's the insides and the outsides. So emotions are part of my insides. And they give rise to various garments, one of which is thought, which is my outsides. So we know that every thought has an emotion behind it. There's a method, and the Alter Rebbe doesn't say where the method is from, but uh, I can tell you where, historically, where it comes from is, interestingly... It's from the Baal Shem Tov. Not that ever doesn't say that, but it's from the Baal Shem Tov. Um, the Baal Shem Tov did not write any svarim. Baal Shem Tov uh, taught, taught orally in Yiddish, and his Talmudim put together various collections of his teachings in writing. And sometimes not just Talmudim, <clears throat> but Talmidei, Talmidov, students, students. So there's sort of a uh, oral tradition, let's say, of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings. 
One of the things the Baal Shem Tov teaches is that if a person is having a machshavazara, which literally translated means a foreign thought, a foreign thought meaning relative to divine service, a thought that is foreign to the service of Hashem, which could be anything ranging from some mundane distraction to something that's outright sinful. Um, that if somebody's experiencing a machshavazara, he should identify the emotion behind the thought. So let's say, for example, he's experiencing an attraction to something that is prohibited. And he's feeling this desire, this, uh, this desire for this prohibited thing. So he should think, well, really, the emotion is just ahava. Ahava is an emotion. And it's getting channeled right now and directed towards some prohibited target of affection. But in essence, ahava is just ahava, and really it could be rechanneled in a pure way as ahava sashem, love of God. So he'll just sort of strip the emotion out of the thought and sublimate it to a uh, pure and holy object. Or let's say he's feeling fear. He's afraid of his, uh, his boss is going to yell at him or some silly thing like that. Feeling fear towards anything but Hashem. So you have to say, well, the, the emotion is yira, and really my yira ought to be only toward Hashem. So you strip the yira out of the thought and remind yourself of yiras Hashem. That's the method. The al Rebbe says, do not do that. Do not engage in that method. In fact, not only does the Alter Rebbe says, say not to engage in that method, but he uses very harsh words. He says, don't be an idiot. <laughs> That's how I translate it in English. Altishoita. Don't be a shoita. Don't be a fool, an idiot. Uh, Don't be stupid. It's not a smart idea. By the way, somebody once said to me, um, you know, I was okay with Tanya until I saw that Chabad Chassidus uh, deviates from Titus of Al-Shamdiv. <coughs> and instantly I knew what he meant. I knew he was picking on this part of chapter 28. And, 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 I, and I asked him, I said, excuse me, who do you think is more familiar with Tehidus of Balshamtiv? You or the Balshamtiv's <laughs> disciple's disciple? Balshamtiv had 60 disciples, but the chief disciple and successor was the Magid. The Magid had 120 disciples. Now of the 120, Levi Yitzchuk who was one of the 120, said, we all drank from the same bowl in Mezrich, but the Litvak, meaning the Alter Rebbe, took the cream, took the best of the Magid's teachings. So, as I said, the Baal Shem Tov's teachings were oral. 
how would you know how to apply the Baal Shem Tov's teachings? Because you read it in a book written by somebody who heard it from someone who heard it from somebody. The Alter Rebbe surely knew how to apply the Baal Shem Tov's teachings. And the Alter Rebbe was surely aware of this teaching. I mean, that's evident because he's mentioning the teaching. And aware of when that teaching applies and when it doesn't. And in fact, the Alter Rebbe gets into, in this chapter, explaining what are the parameters of this teaching. It is a real concept, but not for Sefer Shalbaninim. What do I mean by that? The Alter Rebbe says, this concept of identifying the emotion behind your thought and redirecting it to a pure source was something that was taught for tzaddikim. That is a method that tzaddikim employ. Now you're going to ask me, what? Well, how would a tzaddik even have an opportunity to redirect an inappropriate thought? So he explains that too. He says tzaddikim, because of their extra sensitivity, sometimes are aware of thoughts that other people are having. So it could be the tzaddik is trying to go about his holy avayda, and some guy in the room is thinking machshavazadas, and for a tzaddik that's like, you know, you're trying to you're, you're trying to learn, and, uh, you, and your kids are running around uh, making noise on the iPad, and it's distracting you. So in that case, a tzaddik who is not experiencing his own machshavazara, he's he's picking up on someone else's machshavazara. Then he should take the emotion, strip it out of the thought, and elevate it to a pure and holy object. But if it's your own machshavah that you produced, you should not do this. And the al Rebbe says, how can you lift yourself up when you are tied down below? You know, imagine yourself sitting on the floor and trying to lift yourself up off the floor by picking yourself up by your hair. Pulling your hair to lift yourself up off the floor. That is what it's like. You're having the machshavah and you're trying to elevate it, how can you elevate it when you're down there with it? So this method is not appropriate for Sefer Shalbaninim. Maybe for Sefer Shal Tzadikim, but not for Sefer Shalbaninim. This is not something anybody should do. In fact, again, Al-Tarebi uses harsh terms, you would be a fool to try it. And the Al-Tarebi doesn't elaborate, but uh, just in my own simple understanding, I can very well see how much trouble it causes people who think that somehow there's something holy and good that's going to come from embracing their own dark side in this fashion. You know, it's interesting, because in Tanya we do embrace our dark side to a certain extent, but it's a very specific way of doing that. It's embracing it in the sense of being a realist, being okay with reality, like we're talking about in chapter 27. Okay, so I do have desires that are inappropriate. So what? That's just a fact. So it's more of a, like in a general way of just accepting the fact and just moving on in life and then, and then focusing on the good things we can do. But that's what embracing means, you know, just accepting it. But not like, you know, getting deep into it and then like trying to like, you know, jujitsu it, you know, like I'm going to somehow get in there and be sneaky and redirect it and leave it alone. Leave it alone. 
There may be techniques for this, but they're not for us. Just leave it alone. Then he goes on to explain a little bit about why you should take comfort. Okay, so first of all, what shouldn't you do? I mean, what should you do? You should ignore it. What shouldn't you do? Try this method of picking up the emotion from the, from the thought and elevating it. Why shouldn't you do it? Because it's only for tzaddikim who don't have their own foreign thoughts. Okay, now, how should you regard it? How should you feel about it? So he explains like this. There's an error in thinking that you're making when you are feeling bad about your onslaught of foreign thoughts precisely at the moment of davening. You think this is a sign that you must be really an awful person, that your Yetzirah knows to come and annoy you right when it's time to daven. Al-Tareba says you're actually looking at it totally wrong. It's the opposite. The opposite is the truth. Because your davening is effective, your Yitzhahara knows to come and bother you precisely at the time of davening. Why do you think that all of a sudden this noise ratchets itself up right when you're about to daven? Why do you think that it wasn't so disturbing while you were doing whatever it is, mundane stuff you were doing. And now you try to dive in, and all of a sudden, there's this resistance? Yeah, of course. Because you're about to get a foothold. You're about to do something productive and make some headway, and there's pushback. Of course, it makes perfect sense. The Al-Dribba says, it's like the way of two men who are fighting. You know, sometimes when they're tired, and they just rest on each other. Two guys are fighting. Ladies, you know it. You know about it. You've seen a few good barroom brawls, right? Every day, right? So uh, you swing for a while, and you get tired, and then after a while, you're just sort of like, you're resting, and you're just sort of like lying on each other and uh, holding, propping each other up. But then, if one of them will start to make a move, all of a sudden, the other guy is going to start to push back. Okay. So you go through your day, and, uh, you know, you're not really threatening the... Uh, the Nefjabamas. <laughs> but then you pick up a Siddur, you know, that's, you know, that's, you, you, you're, you're getting serious. That's a threat, right? Something could happen here. So, of course, when there's a threat, when the Nefjabamas picks up a threat, it's going to address the threat. And that's why you, you're getting literally pushback. You're, you're getting resistance to the potentially positive. <laughs> Um, progress that you're about to make. He says, I, I have the, the safer here, and he says a line, it's just one of my favorite lines. I don't know, there's something, the, the, just the wording, the ideas, I don't know, it just always resonates with me. So he talks about here, the person who is uh, the two guys are, are, are fighting, and one pushes, the other pushes back. So a person is thinking that his davening must be worthless, and the proof is because he gets all these stray thoughts, but really, 
Altareb is telling him, no, that's not true. The truth would be as they say it is, meaning the people who believe that having stray thoughts in the time of prayer is a sign that you are doing something wrong. Because he's saying, it's no, it's the opposite. It's a sign you're doing something very right. So he says, The truth would be like they say it is, if he would have one soul, he hamispalelis, it is the one that davens, and it is the one that thinks stray thoughts. Just so, so profound and simple. You say the fact that I'm having stray thoughts at the time of davening is a sign there's something very defective about me spiritually. I hear that. And it would make sense if you had one soul. If you had one soul that is the same soul that davens and the same soul that thinks distracting thoughts, yes, then you would have a good point. But in the truth of truths, meaning the real truth, you have two souls who are fighting each other in your brain. Each one of them has the desire to rule over him. You know, good old chapter 9, small city, right? And to have the brain full of it alone. Each one of them has this absolute victory in mind. So obviously, when you start the daven, which is something that could cause you to actually connect to Hashem, that part of you that's selfish, that's programmed for selfishness, is going to counter that. So next time you're davening and you get the pushback, just take it as a, a healthy sign. Then he goes on, and uh, he says, here's a way you can visualize it. You know, it's interesting, in Tanya, at various points, the question of identity comes up, or the theme of identity. Um, I could make a very strong case by being selective, you know, selectively quoting Tanya, that the whole Tanya is that you should identify with your godly soul. I could also make an equally strong case that the whole Tanya is about you should identify with your animal soul. It's all relative. It depends It depends on what we're talking about. It depends on the perspective. Right now, what he says is, you should look at your animal soul now as a totally foreign entity. When you're trying to daven, and your animal soul is getting... Um, feeling threatened. 
you should view it as a foreign entity, and he even gives you a, a little visualization for it. I wouldn't call it a meditation, because a meditation is more like good stuff that we want to think about and have strong feelings about. Uh, this isn't something you're supposed to, you know, concentrate on for a long time and have strong feelings about. This is more just uh, something you should know, and an easy way of knowing it and remembering it is just to have a little picture in your mind. Do you understand the difference, what I'm saying? Like, it's a, it's a mental thing, but it's not a meditation. A meditation is something that I would sit and think about for a long time, and the longer I think about it, the more impact it'll have. This is not like that. This is more just a, you know, thing that you should know, and an easy way of knowing it, an easy way of remembering is to have a visual way of, of thinking about it and remembering it. And that is, he says, you just imagine that you're davening, and you have this character... Who is this? He, he says, he's. <laughs> I'll give you the the uh, the bilingual Tanya translation, which is a little uh, what do you call it? Uh, anachronistic or arcane, but I think it's better uh, for my purposes. A wicked heathen. <laughs> a wicked heathen. <laughs> a wicked heathen comes into shul, or for you ladies, more realistically probably, you know, your living room, or wherever it is, and you have that siddur, you have that sefer tilim, and you're trying to do something good, and can you imagine this nudnik, he comes over to you, dafka, you're about to daven, you know, like, you, finally you found some time, you have, a, you have a few minutes to do something spiritual, and he comes over, and he starts yapping away, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> hey, you know what I heard on the news? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what would be the appropriate response? Ignore. Ignore. Absolutely ignore. You're not going to gain anything by engaging. He says you should make yourself like you are deaf. Pretend you don't hear. Like we tell our kids when they say, but, you know, these kids were making fun of me on the playground. We say, well, just ignore them and they'll stop. Well, I don't know if that's true. But <laughs> in this case, if your Nevejabamas is harassing you during davening, just ignore him and he'll stop. He's doing it so that you won't daven. And it works for most people, because most people, why will they stop davening once the, the yapping starts? The yapping is louder than their resolve. Yeah, but why should that stop you? You know why it stops you? You know why you lose your resolve? Only because you start feeling bad about yourself, and you say, well, what's my davening worth? <laughs> it only works because it makes you feel bad about yourself. Because then you say, well, if this is the type of davening that is beset with distraction, then the davening is worthless anyway, so well, why, am, why am I doing it? That's like a deeper level, though. Sometimes it's just that you're distracted, that they just succeed. You don't necessarily go to that bad place in your thought. You mm -hmm. might just be distracted, engaged. Mm -hmm. I think the Altarab is more concerned with you becoming demotivated, um, taking it to heart, and going to a dark place emotionally. So I think retroactively you might say, you know, well, that's my true too, yeah. is never that great, I always get yeah. distracted, but in the moment I think you're just in the That's a good point, and perhaps it, 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 
You know, it might be after the fact. It might not be right then and there. It might be in the moment you put down the siddur because, eh, this is too annoying. But then later on, when you piece it together, you might think to yourself, or maybe even, not later on, but like the next time you're about to daven, you say, well, remember the last time I davened, it wasn't very productive, so what's the point? The main idea here of this chapter is don't get down. Do not devalue yourself. Do not diminish your own value. Your davening is powerful. It's very powerful. And the proof that it's powerful is that the other side gets nervous when you're about to do it. So if you're davening and you're getting distracted, just daven with the distraction. And don't think that a distracted davening has any less value than an undistracted davening. It does not. It's not true. Why? Because they're two souls. If you had one soul, and one soul is davening and talking shtus at the same time, well, that's a disaster. You're talking out of two sides of your mouth. You, that's... I, I, if you have one soul that's doing two things that are contra- contradictory to each other at the same time, you're not doing either one of them very well. But once you realize, hold on, it's not one soul, it's two souls. This distraction is coming from a totally different place. Now, it's a, to- it's a totally different attitude toward it. Let the distractions flood you while you're davening. Don't worry about it, just keep davening. We're going to say something. Yes, I, was, I went to a class actually at a Chabad retreat, and it was, a suggestion was given when you start thinking about, oh, I forgot to pay that bill. Oh my gosh, I have to do the laundry. One woman suggested, the teacher, to write it down and continue with your davening. Another person next to you and I went said, don't do that. Is there a do or a don't? No, it's working for me that I can now write down, do the laundry, and continue with my davening. Oh, you're doing it and it's working? working. Well, I don't want to mess with it. (laughs) But I'm thinking that, is is that really giving into my animal soul? I'm not going to answer you, because I don't want to mess with anything that's working. working. But since I have the book open anyways, you know, it says here, A person is davening, and this wicked heathen is standing there. He's speaking and conversing with him just for the sake of distracting him. This is certainly his advice, the advice he should take. He should not answer him, not good or bad. He should make himself like a, like a, like a deaf person who does not hear. You should not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become equal to him. So to you. Don't answer nothing. Not one argument, not one counter. Against this stray thought. Because somebody who wrestles with a filthy person becomes filthy himself. Should make himself like he doesn't know. 
and he doesn't hear. He doesn't hear these thoughts that are falling into his mind. He said, You should just remove them from his mind. But Yosef Ayimitz Bekeich say should just put more intensity into his kavana. That's what it says to do. Yeah. The Balshantov's tool is not recommended, but it's reminding me so much of something in your book on addiction. Okay, let's hear about it. Can you explain? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, stripping down the emotion. Yeah. Finding the source that it truly is. Uh -huh. and building relationships with God. Oh, that's a, okay, okay. So, this is why we try not to let people in the class who know too much <laughs> problems. Okay, right, especially about my book. Okay. You mentioned, okay, so this is this book, God of Our Understanding, Jewish Spirituality Recovery from Addiction. And you, basically what you said is pretty much the, the thesis of the book. I mean, with, with your question you just summarized the thesis of the book, which is that the addiction is a misdirected desire for surrendering and becoming one with, with God. And, it's, and since that's not given a, an outlet, uh, one seeks self-destruction, which is also sort of a way of you know, numbing and um, removing the self. Basically, we're allergic to self, Self gets in between us and the one, the oneness, the everything. So the addiction is a way of attacking one's own sense of self, destroying the self. Um, but really what, the, what they really want is a connection with God. Yes, that's the thesis of the book, and I still believe that's true. Um, but then your question is, well, hold on a second. We just learned here that there's a method... When you're davening and you're beset with a, an unwholesome thought, the Baal Shem Tov said there is such a thing as recognizing the underlying wholesome thought that's behind or potentially within the unwholesome thought. Like, no, you don't really love chocolate cake. That's really just a, a misdirection of your ava. Really, you love Hashem, so just... And we just said the Altar said, don't do that. Okay, so what I will answer to you is that you shouldn't do it. And I wouldn't recommend to any addict, I would never say to someone, well, you know that your desire to drink is really a desire to have conscious contact with God. And, and the reason that's not productive is because you're not giving them any tools to do anything about that. I don't know how to do that. Um, I'm not even sure that I believe that that's what I want. Retroactively, a person in recovery can look back and say, wow, now I see the futility of, you know, the tragedy of it is that everything that I was looking for in my drug of choice really is what I find in my relationship with God. But that's a retroactive thing a person would, would realize after they found it. And how did they find it? They didn't find it by directly trying to switch the two. They found, and this is why I, why I continue to be a proponent of the 12-step method, which is the 12-step method is just a really nice, simple, universal, reliable system for giving people homework, like actual things to do 
in order to get in touch with God, to have a spiritual connection. And then once you have the spiritual connection, so then retroactively you say, oh, that's what I really wanted. That's what I wanted. I wanted this spiritual connection. But not that you would just go up to somebody and say, no, put down the drink, pick up the spiritual connection. It's, it's, it is a true thing. It's a true idea. But the question is the methodology. How is it, how is it approached? So, you know, for, some, for instance, somebody who's in active addiction, and I know what they really want is a deeper connection with God. But how do you respond to that? What tools are you going to give them? You know, what, what action are you going to prescribe? So, it's not going to be, well, just realize, just, just, just confront this desire. And, and by the way, people try to do it. You know, they try to get in there in the cage with the 600-pound gorilla and think that they're going to somehow you know, teach it to slow dance with them, and it doesn't work. The gorilla's going to tear you to shreds every time. So instead, what do you do? Okay, maybe you do realize that deep down what I really want is a connection with God, but the methodology, the actual steps you're going to take are not going to be to get in there and to, to, to wrestle away the pure, the pure godly desire from the, from the diseased thinking. The methodology you're going to follow is going to be something like um, start start trusting God in your day-to-day life and, you know, uh, figure out who you've hurt and make amends and uh, start meditating and praying. You know, just living in a more godly life so that you do have a connection to God. And then once you have that, then that's the be- best proof that that's what you wanted all along because, think about it, that once... A person who has an addiction in life, and no matter what they try to do, they couldn't give it up. And then finally, when they're spiritually fit and they have a, 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 a real connection with God, and they feel they don't, they know, see this is also one of the misunderstood things. Recovery doesn't mean the person is better able to control their cravings. It means really that the obsession is removed. They might from time to time have a passing fancy for their old behavior, but it's really something very fleeting. Um, the obsession is removed. What? No, no, no. Of course the obsession is removed. I don't want to turn this into a class about addiction, but what's never removed is the potential to become addicted again. So, for instance, somebody who is, I mean, I would, this is a whole contentious debate within the recovery world, but, you know, they say recovering or recovered. I would say they're recovered, but there are certain things you can do to immediately relapse and bring back that disease in full force very quickly. So, you know, for instance, let's just take this simple example of the alcoholic. A person who's recovered, had a spiritual experience, doesn't have an obsession to drink. It's not like they have to struggle. Oh, don't drink, don't drink. It's not, it's not, I mean, I might think once in a while, oh, maybe I'll drink. Oh, no, no, I won't. Okay. Now, does that mean that they can safely drink again? Ever again? No, they can't. So that's what it means always an alcoholic or always an addict is that you didn't become like a normal person who can now do that thing in moderation. You know, you can't have it in your life anymore. But the obsession, it's not like you should be constantly dealing with an obsession. The obsession should have been removed. At any rate, to answer the question, yes, it is true that every negative, I mean, if you think about it, 
everything negative in the universe has God at its core because there's no other existence, there's no other source of reality. So even the darkest evil, if you would be able to gaze into its essential core that gives it existence, you would find a spark of godliness, right? Isn't that what Moshe Rabbeinu said to, to Hashem when he had to go to Parai? He said, I'm afraid of Parai, he's such intense evil. And Hashem said, el pare, come to Pare, meaning Hashem saying, I'm already there. You, you, pare is evil, if you go down to the real core of it, it's just the existence of God. Don't be afraid of evil. Evil is just misappropriating God's power. So everything at its core is God, including my Yetzirah and my Nefeshabamis and all of my sickest, darkest, most twisted desires. If you get deep down, it's all God. Of course it's all God. The only question is, do I know how to deal with that? Do I know how to manage that? Am I, am I capable of pulling apart the darkness and the garbage and the junk and getting down to that, that, that underlying spark of godliness? And the author was saying here, no, you're not. You're not. You know, it's similar to, I, I get, I, again, I don't want to get into a whole side conversation, but like, here we're talking about our own evil, our own internal evil. You remember back in chapter 6, 7, and 8, remember we learned those chapters all three together, because I, I didn't want to dwell on negativity too long. They're all about klippa, because chapter 6 is about the klippa within. And then chapter 7 and 8 were about the klippa in the world around us. Namely, they're the, 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 the klippas neiga, the redeemable klippa, the, the mundane stuff that can become holy. Like you drink the water and then you use it to, to learn Tanya and you're elevating the water. And then there's the irredeemable klippa, the stuff like the ham sandwich, just leave it alone. Your relationship with it is a non-relationship. You can't do anything with it, so just walk past it. Okay, so this is a classic question. And it, and, it, and it doesn't come from, um, you know, shallow people. It always comes from spiritual people who are misguided. I mean, this is the slippery slope that the Alta Rebbe is really hinting to at the beginning of this chapter. The people who think, I'm going to somehow harness the evil, and I'm going to tap into the godliness within it, and I'm going to redirect it, and I'm going to bring it back, and, you know, like, I'm going to deal with the... Because really, if you learn Kabbalah, you know, all the prohibited stuff, you know what it explains there about the prohibited stuff? It says that it's from a higher source, spiritually. Remember we, talked, we learned about different levels of reality? Remember in chapter 26, the lower good and the higher good? And, okay, okay, so this is parallel to that concept. That, for instance, prohibited things are on a higher level than permissible things. Why? Because a permissible thing you can handle, and I mean that in both, uh, with both connotations. You can handle it, meaning you can pick it up, manipulate it. You can take the estrog and the lulav and, and handle it. You can shake it. Also, I mean handle it like you can deal with it. You are capable of managing a relationship with it. Then there are things like the ham sandwich, where I can't handle it. Why can't I handle it? Because it's so powerful. It's from a high spiritual source. I can't handle it, and I have to be humble enough to say, I can't deal with it. So I don't touch it. My relationship with it, I don't pick it up. So this right here, chapter 28, is talking about when this is internal. The internal evil, or klippa, whatever you want to call it. 
a person might think, I can, I can deal with this. I can, I can deal with him. Because, you know, I know it's coming to me as sinful thoughts in the middle of davening. But if I really get down to the, the heart of it, it's just a misdirected desire for God. So let me get in there and, and get in touch with that and, and lift the whole thing up. And the altar says, don't do it. It's a fool's errand. You will not succeed. You will not succeed. You will get pulled in. It's not going to turn out well. If you've heard about people who do this and succeeded, those were tzaddikim. And they were able to do it because they were standing on dry land and holding out a hand to the person who's drowning. But you're drowning and you're holding a hand to yourself. Don't try to do it. Again, this is... I don't think we're going get, to get into this topic at such length, but... This is a general, like I said, it's an occupational hazard of being spiritual. You don't see the people who are non-spiritual getting into this, uh, this problem area. But people who get so spiritual and so lofty, and they just start seeing godliness in everything. And yeah, it's true, godliness is in everything, even in, e in evil. But on a practical level, how are you supposed to deal with it? Halacha and... And, and chassidus are pretty clear about how to deal with, with evil. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. And like we said back in chapter 6, 7, and 8, when we were talking about, or it was more specifically in chapter 8, about the irredeemable klippah, Hashem says, the spirit of impurity, when Mashiach comes, I will remove it. Hashem says, I will remove it. In other words, you deal with everything that's mundane, and potentially holy and can be uplifted. Totally avoid that which cannot be uplifted. And I, says Hashem, I will come and I'll pick up the scraps that you couldn't deal with. And the same thing pertains to the internal battle. The stuff that's mundane, we deal with it. In other words, just the fact that I get up and eat breakfast and then use those calories to daven, that's a transformation. A transformation of the mundane to the holy. So there, there I am rechanneling and redirecting. Why? Because I can handle that. That's something I can handle. I can take kosher food, I can make a bracha on it, I can eat it l'shem shemayim, and I can take the mundane energy and turn it into davening. That I can handle. But, in the middle of davening, I start thinking about not holy things, inappropriate things that, that my animal soul thinks are very cool, and I'm going to try to be the therapist with that in the middle of the davening, and like figure out how, oh no, you just misdirected, you misguided, let's get to the heart of it, and let's lift up the whole thing. It's not going to work. It's not going to, not only will it not work, the consequences, consequences will be disastrous. So the alternative says, very simple, let it just go, it's just, and, and even if it's outrageous stuff you're hearing, it's not, don't identify with it. Don't, that's what he's saying, don't identify with it. He's just doing his job. Let him talk. Let him yap. And you just keep davening, and don't feel bad about your davening, and don't feel like your davening has any less value. No, this is the twist. Like in chapter 27, we had the twist where the person feels bad that he has tivus. We said, don't feel bad. Oh, okay, if I won't feel bad. No, no, feel good. Like, not only don't feel bad, but actually feel good. The twist, he flips it. So here, 
Don't feel bad that you have machshavas zaros and davening. Okay, I won't feel bad. No, no, not only don't feel bad. Feel good. It's a good sign. Take it. T- take it as a compliment. Your davening is worthy of the davening trying to disrupt it. If your davening didn't affect anything, he would he would leave it alone. There's a couple of questions. We have a few minutes left. We're, yeah. Me? Yeah. I'm just pragmatically on her questions. So if you can't get the thought out of your head, ideally get the thought out. But if it helps, you just write it down. List. Oh, okay. So there's a few more lines in the chapter, and it addresses that. Okay. Because okay, plan A is ignore, 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 ignore. And then the last few lines of the chapter are what do you do when the ignoring isn't working? Should we do that? Yeah. Can we finish yeah. it up? Yeah. Okay, fine. So the last few, last few lines here. So he says, just ignore, 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 ignore. And actually, it's interesting. He, he doesn't ever say to stop ignoring. He doesn't ever say there's a point at which the ignoring isn't working. He says there's a point where it becomes too much for you. Mm-hmm. That's what he says, Vim yikshala, if it becomes difficult for him. Not that it's not working. It does work. In fact, that's the only thing that works. But if you find it troublesome, la sira medaitoi, to remove these thoughts from your mind. Because they're pounding you relentlessly. That's my liberal translation. As I then, what should he do? You should lower yourself before Hashem, meaning this is done very humbly. This is not done in a... Hey, Hashem, I got some problems over here. I'm trying to dive for you. My Nefjabamas won't stop bothering. Take care of it. No. Yashpil Nafshay Lifna Hashem. You humble yourself. Yishanin Lo Yisbarach B'Machshavtei. You should beseech him in your thoughts, meaning you don't stop and verbalize it, probably because you're in the middle of davening. But you should just mentally speak to Hashem. And what should you say to Hashem? Berachem Olav. Take pity on me. Berachem Olav Amarubim with Hashem's abundant mercies. Like a father has pity on his children. Like a father who has pity on his children who come from his brain. That's a reference back to chapter 2. But the idea that a child has the DNA of the father. That a child isn't just a relationship between two people, but a child is an extension of the, the father. That Basically, you're saying to Hashem, don't just have pity on me because, you know, I'm, I'm your child. That means that I'm little and cute. You know, like we think little children are cute. Um, so look at me. I'm just this little baby. No, it means look at me. I'm you. Which is really why we have real, you know, the real feelings we have for our children, let's face it, is because we see ourselves in them. Except without any of the reasons why we hate ourselves. So we just, just a pure sense of self-preservation in my child. Which is why you have a stronger self-preservation instinct for your child than for yourself. Um, right? You have to save you, you or your child, God forbid, from burning building. The self-preservation, it's not altruism. Self-preservation instinct is save your child first. Because it's you, because that's you. So you say to Hashem, I'm you. You know, your godliness went down into this situation here. This soul came into this body. 
So you say, Vikocha Yirachim Hashem al Nafshe and the Mishachas Meita Yisbarich. You ask Hashem, have 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 mercy on this soul, which really is you that came down here in this bodily form, right? Because that's what the Nefesh Shalakis is, after all. So you're asking Hashem to have mercy on himself. Save this soul, this holy soul, from these wicked waters. And for his sake, meaning Hashem's sake, Yaseh, do this. Because Hashem's portion, literally, not figuratively, is his nation. You're asking Hashem, look at me. I'm an extension of you, or at least my true self, my godly soul, is an extension of you. Hashem, you are in trouble right now. You, the extension of yourself, is in trouble. A distressing situation. Hashem, save yourself. Do it for yourself. As opposed to, you know, hey, do it for me. That's what it means. Yashkalat's me. You should come humbly to Hashem. Humbling yourself. It's not about me. It's not about my davening. Oh, I'm trying to have a good davening over here. Get over yourself. It's not about me. It's about Hashem. Hashem's got a situation over here. Hashem's pure, precious, holy soul has come down to this situation where it's being uh, troubled. And uh, we're asking for Rachmanis on, on the Neshama. But that, again, we said that's plan B. Plan A is ignore, 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 don't worry about it. And there's actually nothing wrong with the static in the background continuing. It doesn't diminish any value of your davening. I know you might enjoy your davening more without distraction, but again, are you davening because it's enjoyable, or are you davening for Hashem? I mean, yeah, we always have to, in Tanya, we always have to go back to that reality check. You know, this whole thing, is this a self-help program? Hey, I'm trying to become a bainini over here, and you know, you're not letting me. Or is this about, I want Hashem to have the most that Hashem can have from me. Okay, so chapter 28, if you're having uh, stray thoughts in the middle of davening, you should know that it's a good sign. Don't feel bad about it. Actually, you should uh, take it as a sign you're doing something right. And uh, ignore, 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 ignore. And if the ignoring doesn't work, then uh, ask Hashem for mercy like a father on his child. Yeah.